Hey, welcome everyone to the Financial Independence Podcast, the podcast where I get inside the brains of some of the best and brightest in personal finance to find out how they achieved financial independence. On today's show, I'm excited to welcome back Chad Carson from CoachCarson.com. Chad was on the show a few years ago to talk about real estate, and he has since released a book that's compiled all of the various strategies that you can use to retire early with real estate. And he shared an advanced copy with me, and I really enjoyed it, and it's actually got me super fired up about real estate again, which... I was sort of sad about it at first, which I talk about in the episode, but now I'm actually really excited about it. I just wanted to get him on to talk about all these various strategies, and he did a lot of interviews in the book about people who actually use these strategies to retire early, so I wanted to dive into some of those stories, and I wanted to get his opinion on a strategy that I've been personally thinking about utilizing. It's something I came up with myself, and I don't know if it's actually a thing or if it's a good idea, so I wanted to get him on to talk about that as well. Without further delay, Chad, thanks a lot for being here. I really appreciate it. Man, it's awesome to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so last time I spoke to you, you were just pretty much just landed in Ecuador to start a year in South America with your wife and two kids, right? That's correct. Yeah. And now where are you? So we just got back a couple months ago. So it, it, the trip lasted about 17 months. And we had just an amazing time. We made it back to South Carolina, Clemson, South Carolina, a little college town where our, our home is. And we had tenants in our home for two years. So we had to sort of wait wait a little bit until they moved out. But I mean, looking back over the whole experience, I'm just, I still pinch myself that it worked out so well. And we had such an amazing experience just in so many different ways, uh, just to be able to take off and put things on pause and leave. It was awesome. That's amazing. That's great. And it was cool that I got to see you down there. We uh, met up at the Chautauqua and had some Ecuadorian fun together, which was nice. For sure. Yeah. You didn't have any guinea pig though, did you? No, I didn't. Did you? (laughs) I did. Yeah. How was it? Yeah. Well, it's okay. It it put the, it put the, like the new understanding on baby back ribs when I was eating one of these things, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like just picture, like I can barely fit this little rib in my, my hand, you know, and you're like (laughs) gnawing on it, like something from dumb and dumber, but it was, uh, it was, it was good. It was, uh, I mean, I wouldn't have it like every day, but getting to to try it out. And every taxi driver we talked to in Ecuador is like, Oh yeah. Que bueno necesita probar. (laughs) And he likes, you got to try this guinea pig. It's amazing. So we had had to do it. (laughs) Yeah, no, we did. I didn't get to do that. But when we were walking around, I think it was Otavalo or something, we were, we got some fried bugs, lots of fried bugs. (laughs) And we had some of those and they, they weren't too bad. They just tasted like fried anything really. Yeah. If you put it down with some beer, it always, it always works out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's great. I'm so glad it went well. Um, cause yeah, seven, did you say 17 months? That's quite the, quite the yeah. time to be away and especially just somewhere in South America. Yeah. We were planning on 12 months and that's part of, I guess, early retirement and financial independence. Some of the benefits we were there and things were going well. And we said, yeah, let's just, uh, let's extend this trip. We don't have any reason to specifically to come back. And our, 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 one of the main reasons we went was, you know, we had all sorts of like experiences that were positive, but our, our daughters were in, uh, local schools. And so they were really doing well and had friends and they were speaking Spanish fluently and like they were correcting me. Like I, I've been speaking Spanish, not great, but speaking it longer than they have. And my, my wife is fluent and teaches Spanish, but they would come home and we would speak Spanish around the dinner table. And they'd say, Papa, no se dice eso. They'd like, they like, they'd wag their finger at me and like, correct me. Like, I was like, oh my gosh, my, my little kids are correcting my Spanish. This is awesome. <laughs> That's amazing. So, so did you have tenants locked in for two years or was that something where they got to the one year and you're like, Hey, do you want to stay another year? Yeah. They, they were there for two years and they actually 
um, emailed me early before we came back and said, hey, we would really like to stay another year. And we were so tempted just to like, to keep going. And um, it just is sort of, we were sort of torn between coming back and we had family and grandparents who were wondering, wanting to know we were still alive and wanted to see their grandkids. And so, but I think it, it definitely ignited the, the itch to do this again. Like, I, I don't know when it's going to be, we're going to settle down for another year here and they're going to a local American elementary school this year. But there's no doubt that like experiencing the flexibility and the ability to travel and see new places and still have the income coming in back at home, sort of it made it made me realize this is possible we're gonna we're already sort of thinking about you know what's next oh that's very cool and how did it go renting out your house i know like a lot of people are probably in the same situation as you were and you're thinking oh this would be great to just go take our family away for a year Um, but a lot of people would probably worry about their houses getting trashed or something like that so how did how did renting out your primary residence go yeah, it went really well. And I mean, I have the benefit of being in the rental business. So, you know, I had a little bit of experience uh, screening tenants, but we, we found a couple who had a young kid and they were, uh, he's, he's a professor at Clemson and they had a, a local at the university and they had a, um, a little business they had started the year before. So they were super busy, but they were awesome. Never missed the, you know, they were early on the rent payment every month. They did improvements to the house. Um, it was a few little things like they weren't as much yard people as we are. So they, you know, the, we had like a jungle in our backyard when we came <laughs> home. But <laughs> other than that, it was like, it was great. And so I, I mean, being, home ownership for a lot of people, you know, is, is not their thing. Like just renting keeps you flexible. But I would encourage people who are homeowners who think that it's an anchor and it's going to hold you down, like being able to rent your home and have that flexibility is very doable and it worked great for us. And in fact, it funded, like we, we made a profit. We were probably like positive 500 a month on our house. And so wow. in, in Ecuador that covered our grocery bill, you know? So it's, I mean, it was just not only like it sustained itself, it actually um, allowed, uh, the tri- enabled the trip even more. That's amazing. That's yeah, that's really cool. And I'm definitely going to talk to you more about, you know, using your primary residence and renting it out because I think that's the only way that I'll ever, ever buy a house again is, uh, <laughs> is if I buy it first as like with rental in mind so that, you know, one, it's a decent investment and it doesn't actually tie us down because it could be rentable. So we're, we'll, we'll, we'll dive into that. But before we do, I'd, I'd want to get into what the state of your real estate business is now. Cause I think last time we talked, you had something like 90 units and things were going great, but now you just spent 17 months in South America. So how did, how did that play out? Yeah. So there's a couple things. I mean, we're, we're about the same level. We've actually sold, we're about to sell one property. And so we're, we're sort of whittling it down a little bit, but um, you know, the number of units, we, we basically pressed pause on like the growth. We didn't try to grow. We didn't try to do much. We just sort of set, you know, kept steady during while we were there. But um, one of the big challenges and the things I just wanted to make, you know, I worked on pretty hard before we left was having a lot of systems in place and having people on the ground who could help me. And, you know, you, it worked before I left, but you never know until you just leave the country and say, all right, uh, people who are managing my properties, you're on your own. You, know, you can text me here and there, but I'm, I'm in another country. And it worked really well. Like I, I think better than my expectations. Um, and so I think it confirmed for me, like having, we had a couple different structures, um, different systems for how people manage our properties. We had a third party manager, uh, just a company, a local company who managed part of them. And then we have um, a, we had a person who's worked with us for a long time. It started as a bookkeeper, and then she grew into an administrator and kind of helps us manage properties now. Um, between her and a, a handyman who's really a good handyman, uh, they handled 
you know, 95% or more of day-to-day activity. And then every week, my routine while I was in Ecuador was they would, um, she would upload the bills that we uh, owed that week. Like if a contractor came out or whatever, she would scan them in, in Evernote. So I could go look at what the bill was. And then I would go online to the, to your bill, to the bill pay for my bank and just send them a check. So it'd take me, you know, sometimes 20, 30 minutes, sometimes an hour, hour and a half, depending on how much there was and how much bookkeeping I needed to do. But it allowed me to stay, sort of stay involved a little bit, but I would do it for an hour and then go go take a Spanish lesson or go drink a beer, do something else. <laughs> That's amazing. So so for people out there who are, already do have a real estate portfolio and we're thinking about doing something similar, the, the key people in your mind to hire would be, you know, a, a general handyman and then someone to do admin or have you used like full service management companies in the past and would you recommend them or what, what would what would be your main focus knowing that now what you know after being 17 months down in South America? Right. I would say from most people out there hiring a third party management company who has a lot of those functions built in already is the best way to go. Um, so like I, I'm a little bit of an exception because I started off doing the like building my own little management business and we have enough units where it makes sense to have some of our own um, you know, people working with us a lot. Um, so I, I would say 99% of people hire, hire a management company yourself and let, you know, they're going to have a handyman, they're going to have a plumber, they're going to have an electrician. They're going to take the maintenance calls in the middle of the night. Like you'll never have to mess with any of that stuff. And you can just be sort of the person who's managing the manager, getting financial reports, asking them questions. I think that's the best, best way to go for most of us. Um, there's, you know, but there are other people who are a little bit more hands-on. And so you'd be more like what I have done. And in that case, one of the most important things, in addition to having sort of a, a bookkeeper or somebody who's going to help you kind of talk to collect rent and do some of those functions, is having a, a just sort of a list of good uh, repair contractors like that. That's what is the big deal. Like if, if you if some if somebody has an issue on a Saturday and their their toilet's leaking and water's going on the floor. Yeah, you just want to be able to call or text that handyman and then be able to go out to the house, take care of it, send you some pictures and and know and have trust that they're going to actually follow through and do it right. So you weren't too busy managing your own 90 rentals it sounds like. So you had time to write a book, which big congratulations. <laughs> you sent me an advanced copy and I loved it. So Thank yeah, you. it's great. Um how to retire early with real estate. It's through bigger pockets. It's fantastic. So yeah, how was that process? Uh, it was laborious. <laughs> it was, I can't lie. Like the, the actual writing of it was, you know, it was, it was, it became a, you know, it became tedious a little bit, but I, I love the topic and I'm so passionate about retiring early and the financial independence community. And what I really wanted to do was sort of combine two communities that I'm a big part of, you know, like the real, real estate investing, bigger pockets, how to use a, a few rental properties to build wealth and, and create income is something I've, all, I've done for a long time, obviously. Um, and then I'm, super passionate though about a lot of things you talk about on your podcast and a lot of the community of, you know, not knowing when you've hit enough money and like enjoying your life and focusing on happiness and what doing what matters is sort of the theme of my, of the whole book. And so it was just fun, like combining those two ideas and, and the, the, the idea is that be a, a strategy guide. So like almost like you're climbing a mountain and financial independence is at the top um, but then along the way, there's a bunch of plateaus, like what I've done with many retirements and maybe semi-retirement. And I try to show how like the main routes up the mountain using real estate, what they are and how you do them. And um, I got to interview uh, 24 other 
early retirees who used real estate and I sort of showed their numbers and how much income they need to live off of and how, how they did it with real estate. So like I, I learned a ton just getting to sort of get outside my own box and learn how other people have done it and try to, you know, the, try to teach it to other, other people as well. No, it was, it was fantastic. And it, I loved the case studies. I, it was always like a treat at the end of the chapter to like hear about somebody who had put that particular strategy into practice. And, uh, and yeah, your, your site is called coachcarson.com. And it really felt like a playbook for using real <laughs> estate to get to uh, financial independence. Was that, was that like a conscious choice? Because it, it yeah, it's like these, all these different strategies and you'd, give the pros and cons of each. And it really just felt like a playbook. Yeah. That's funny. You mentioned that. Like I'm probably happiest. I have have this old chalkboard in the house that I live in. It was like, you know, of all the features in the house, I didn't look at the kitchen. I didn't look at the bathrooms. I was like, there's a chalkboard in the basement. Awesome. (laughs) Like, like, like for me, like drawing plays on a chalkboard or, you know, when I played football or like, you know, somebody sitting beside me and me kind of like drawing it up on a board and say, Oh, this is how you could do it. You could buy the property and you can make sure all your expenses are covered. And then you have this much income. So that, that's what I wanted it to feel like. I really appreciate you saying that because I wanted it to be like, Hey, I'm a, I'm a coach. I'm on your side. I'm like that, that guy who cares about you, you know, doing what matters in your life. And let me share some strategies that have worked really well for me and other people. And, and I hope they can help you. Yeah, no, it, it definitely came across like that. It was really enjoyable. And yeah, it gave me a lot to think about. And like I said, when I tweeted congratulations to you on Twitter, um, it made me want to <laughs> potentially dive into real estate again. And and I did have a negative uh, attitude towards that in the tweet, <laughs> which you obviously picked up on and laughed at. Um, but it did. It, it got me really excited about it. And I, I think I may be ready to dip my toes back in again after forgetting about the uh the houses that i've bought in the past which like were a completely different scenario those were houses to live in they weren't investments i was not as smart back then um so so yeah all of my negativity towards real estate in the past is all my own doing because i there were my mistakes that i made so yep um but so that it gave me a lot to think about and i also recognized a lot of the people that you did case studies about which was which was exciting and one of the the first ones i'd like to talk about actually is Liz is from San Diego, mm-hmm. who we both met on Chautauqua. And right. she's been really big into something called Peer Street, which is, correct me if I'm wrong, it's sort of like being a hard money lender mm-hmm. um, on a grand scale. So rather than lending money to you, a real estate guy who's going to then do up a house and flip it, and then I would just collect interest from you. I, I think the way it works is I would just put in some money and I could potentially be part of many deals. Um, Mm -hmm. The good thing about that is it's sort of like lending club in that you're lending money to people through the internet and you're collecting interest, except that your actual... It's backed by real estate, and you're the first lien holder. Is that is that, everything I said? Is that correct? Exactly right. Yeah. It's so it's it, the the cool thing about it, like you know, as a as somebody with money and capital, and that's the thing that be like kind of a disclaimer about some of these like crowdfunding sites is what we're talking about is that you typically have to be an accredited investor, so you have to already be able to demonstrate that you have a million dollar net worth or um, you make two hundred thousand dollars a year. I think those are the qualifications. And so for a lot of us, like if you're someone new, you're like new in your real estate journey or new in your financial independence journey, it might be something that won't be accessible to you right off the bat. Like that's just, I guess, the main point. But but as you grow and as you accumulate some capital, 
like what Liz did, like just beautifully, like she's just the best example in my mind. Like she was a commercial lender, like in her regular job, like that was what she did every day was make loans to people. And so the way she explained it to me was, you know, I already have this skill set. I like making, I like being the lender. I like being the person who funds the deal and then lets another entrepreneur go make the money and they pay me interest. Like she was just used to that. And it, it really is like, I've done some lending now too, and I'm going to be doing more of that. It's a beautiful thing when you can um, just make interest and you have a secure investment. And for me, like I, I like having real estate, so I don't mind having my money secured by a piece of real estate. And so what she did with, with, the, with the crowdfunding platforms, the new kind of innovation with them is that it used to be like I had to have a hundred thousand bucks saved up and I would like it, Brandon, if you wanted to go buy a property, I could then loan that money to you individually. And that's fine. You know, like if you can meet that person and I still think that's a good viable strategy. But one of the issues with that is like the, you set, you have the risk of having one person, one property, like if you screw that up, you know, you screwed it up big time on one property. Whereas some of these crowdfunding platforms, I think I, I think it's the best part about them is that I could take that same $100,000 and I could make potentially, you know, $100, $1,000 loans um, and basically like pool up with other people. So like I could have a hundred different properties. And so you get some of that like diversification that we all know is important. Um, I could even diversify over different states. You know, I might say, all right, I want to have 25 loans in California, 25 loans on the East Coast, 25 loans in the South, 25 in the Midwest. You know, you could like, you could sort of uh, spread it out geographically, which is really hard to do in real estate. So I, I, I think there's some challenges to those as well, like just because they're so new, you know, they're just brand new, but I, I really am intrigued by the concept. And Liz demonstrates it beautifully that she put a big chunk of capital in, in Pier Street, which is one of the better ones. And she has been living off interest, like in FI, like she's, that's instead of her having to draw down on um, some of the, her other capital and other accounts, more traditional accounts, she can just live off the interest um, and not touch any of the principal. Yeah, no, it, it's, it seems really interesting. She, and she's a friend uh, of both of ours now, and mm -hmm. she was kind enough to share like all her spreadsheets and all the analysis that went into it and how right. all the returns have been coming in. And it, it does look like a, a great way to go if you're not wanting to you know, go out there and try to find these individual lenders yourself. So, so yeah, so, so that obviously you are a very active real estate investor and you know, you've built up your portfolio by working hard and hitting the ground and hitting the neighborhoods and things like that. Um, is that something you think you'd ever get into? Yeah, I'm already doing it. I'm sort of testing it out and I, I don't write a lot. I, I haven't written about it on my blog yet because I'm just, you know, people listen to what I'm saying about real estate sometimes and I just want to make sure I'm um, really like doing it myself. And so I'm, I'm going to get ready to start writing some articles and share my experiences. But so far, so good. Like I, I like the, I like the concept and um, you know, to me, like the beautiful thing about lending your money is, or the, not the beautiful thing, but the thing you should always keep in mind is that um, you, you want to make sure like the collateral that you have is, is always like the first thing you think about like that in real estate, you either own the property or you own like the, the loan that's securing the property and you can make money with either one, but like the, the, the core of real estate always is that collateral, that piece of real estate. And so um, as long as you're making loans and you're keeping that in mind, like I, one of the things I want to make sure, I, the discipline I want to make sure I do when I'm making loans is always stay below a certain loan to value. 
and and I, and yeah. I believe it's the max for Pierce Street. When I was just poking around, it looked like seventy five percent was the max. Cor- was it correct? Yeah, I think that's right. So you, you can make a choice. So it's really cool. You can filter it out and say, I don't want to make any loans over sixty five percent loan to value, or I don't, I don't want to make any loans over seventy percent. And you can you can sort. There's like a bunch of different criteria you can choose. And, and so I think those you know, playing around with those criteria and, you know, for all the you know, analytical walks out there in our, in our community, like you could probably go back and look at success rates of past loans. And, and so I think that'll be a key component over the next five, 10 years of making sure because inevitably we're going to have another downturn. Right. And so um, the security you have in a down real estate market is, is having some, some equity above and beyond what loan, the loan you made. That way, if you have to take a property back, which you will eventually, somebody's going to not pay you, um, you, you, would, you wouldn't be panicked about that. You would say, all right, I've got some equity. I'm going to take it back, sell it. And you won't have to take it back. Pure Street or whoever the lender is will take it back for you. But there'll, there'll be some cost and you'll have a, some margin to eat up those costs. And being first lien holder, you would be first in line for getting the property. So there'd be no, exactly. no you wouldn't be sh- splitting that with anyone. If they stop paying their mortgage, then you know they default and they foreclose. And then that property is owned by you, the investor. Correct. That's that's the important part. First lien means you're first in line. That there's no, I would be, I would be very cautious about making second lien, second loans. I think there's some out there, but uh, that's a whole nother ball game. That's why lending clubs seem like such a crazy idea to me, just <laughs> making loans to people that were secured by absolutely nothing. And it just, yeah. So that's yeah. when I first heard of Pier Street, I was like, oh, I, was, I wasn't too sure about it. And then I heard that it was actually backed up by the actual property and you'd be, you would get it uh, at the end of the day. It was that made me change my mind a little bit, which is good. Yeah. One, one of the, I'll add one more thing about crowdfunding. I know that we're kind of going down a rabbit hole, but I think it's a cool rabbit hole. Um, you know, the, the innovation and the reason I said that we all have to be kind of cautious about it. Like I'm not putting all my money in there. Just you want to still diversify is because it's a new, the, the, the technology and the, the legal contracts that attach your money to that property is something new. Like it hasn't been tested a lot. And what right. I mean by that is like, you, you're not actually, when you loan that $1,000, you are basically making buying a loan to Pier Street or to an entity that Pier Street controls or owns, and then they are making a loan to the actual borrower. Um, and so, like you know, on, in their books and in their contracts and everything, it's supposed to be connected. And more than likely, it is. Like, um, but it's just not tested. Like, if one of these right. new if one of these new companies went out of business, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that in every case they wouldn't be able like the the bankruptcy court and whatever happened with your the if Pier Street went out of business or whoever it was um, wouldn't take the the properties that you own and they would be able to kind of separate you from your loan like I, I know it's, it's supposed to happen right but I just I don't know like it's just new to me and so I just, I'm kind of pointing out the things I'm cautious about and concerned about seeing and I think we'll know like the next downturn when when one of the technology companies goes out of business we'll kind of see how the how that's treated but up until now nobody really knows. Oh, that's yeah. No, that's great to point out. So, thanks for that. And and just before we move on, because yeah, you're right, we're down some a rabbit hole, but it is an interesting one. So, is 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 Pier Street the major player in the space, or are there others that you've heard are bigger, better, more established? Uh, it's one of the big ones, and I, I like the user interface with them, and they seem to be very transparent, which I like. Um, so they're they're one of the big ones I'm testing out. Uh, Realty Shares is another one I'm testing out. They're they're a little bit different. Like they have a they're almost a different animal. They do some loans like Pier Street does. Pier Street almost 100, percent I believe, is just loans to borrowers and typically hard money loans like people flipping houses. 
Um, Realty shares is a little bit different where sometimes they do loans, but they're more like commercial real estate. So you might be able to buy into a deal where you have, you're an equity partner in a big apartment complex. And so that's, that's a little different. Like instead of you, you could be the lender, you could be the owner. And so the, the caution there, like if you're brand new to real estate, I think that would be, I'd be a little bit more nervous about that, like going into and having to analyze a real estate deal and know that you should be an equity partner on this deal. But for people who have a little more experience, it's a really good way to get access to these big syndications and commercial real estate deals all over the country that you might not have access to otherwise. Because in the past, it used to be like, oh, who do you know in this local town? And it was a kind of a old man's club, you know, who, who were able to control, control all of the deals and whoever had money on Wall Street could kind of get into them. Whereas what, what Realty Shares and um, there might be a couple of others that, that do that as well they're doing is sort of taking those deals and putting them out on a technology platform and allowing other people to get access to them at small, like $5,000, $10,000 increments. Right. Okay. Yeah. That sounds interesting as well. Cause yeah, you may not have the capital to purchase a 40 unit apartment building, but a fraction of it maybe maybe a good return on investment. Right. Yeah. No, it's interesting. No, I'll, I'll look forward to, uh, reading all your analysis on coach Carson once you try all these things out. Cause it, yeah, it's exciting to, it is, but it's being sort of democratized in a way. So, so yeah, so that was the first thing that sort of got me excited. I was like, Oh, maybe I could, maybe I could do that a little bit. <laughs> and then, mm-hmm. and then I got to the long-term buy and hold, which has always been something that I thought would be really interesting to do. And I would love to have just a very small portfolio of buy and hold real estate, uh, particularly in my hometown of Pittsburgh, because it just seems like such a good rental market. And I could see us maybe going back there one day. So it would be nice to maybe have a property to go back to. And and I don't know, just for peace of mind, like if the stock market just blew up, like I would have nothing. But at least <laughs> if I had a house, I could go live there <laughs> so, um, for, for a little bit of diversification. So so in the book you had talked about like what you look for in like you you had mentioned like low maintenance construction when you're looking for a long-term buy and hold and you mentioned things like solid surface floors, brick exteriors. And I was just wondering, is there anything else you look for either in how it's constructed or the type of house, like three bed, two bath, a certain square footage? Um, is there like a sweet spot in your mind as far as what's a good rental uh, prospect? Yes, it's a really good question. The I think there's two components there. That there's the the actual building itself. Like so we call that like the sticks and the bricks. Like that, you know, the sticks and the bricks are really important. Um, and so you, you want to look at that. And I'll, I'll go into that in a second. And there's but the probably the the first thing and the more important thing is the the location of the real estate. And and so like I always start with a location, and and so it's almost like Google Maps. Like when you when you zoom all the way out of Google Maps, you're like looking at the big picture view of the whole country or the whole world. You know, um, you see certain trends when you do that big zoomed out view. And and real estate investing, like the big trends you want to look for, and like Pittsburgh, I think is a good example of a of, a, of some positive trends from what I can tell. Uh, is you want to see in general, like a you want to invest in an area where population is increasing over mm-hmm. time. And you want to, you want to, you can see that kind of data at the census.gov uh, or the equivalent in whatever country you're in. And, and so you just want to see like, all right, what are the, what are the trends look like? Are, are, is population increasing or is it like, you know, like Detroit is a kind of, everybody likes to pick on Detroit, but like for a long time, it was, you know, losing population for, I mean, for decades, it wasn't like a surprise. Like everybody knew like 
two or three decades in a row, it was, it was going down in population. It actually might be making a comeback. Just I'm not 100% sure. I hadn't seen much of it. But um, the point is, like, you can see, like, the big, huge demographic changes. And so you want a city where, where there's some net population increase. And you also want a city or an, a metro area where there's actually a pretty good, diverse economy. And, and what I mean by that is, like, like if you went into a town where the only, like, 90% of the employment was from a military base, like, one military base, you know, the, what, the thing that makes me nervous about that is, like, what happens if five, 10 years from now, they pull the plug on that military base. Sure. And, and so like what you'd rather have is a diverse economy with a lot of different businesses, a lot of different employment sources. And you'd really like to see like professional, young professional kind of employment growing if you can. So like that, that 20 something, 30 something, you know, who makes, you know, who makes good money. And, and so like you, you want, you want working class jobs, but you also want some of those white collar jobs as well, because that's going to influence the prices a, a good bit. Cause they're the ones buying houses. They're the ones sort of moving into the, the new trendy kind of districts. Um, and so between like, if you're zoomed out on Google maps, that's what you're looking for. You're looking for that you know, population and the economic kind of factors. And in general, that I mean, that could take you an hour to do some research on that. And if you if you're from a city, it might take even less time. You can you're re- just reading the newspapers and studying it. You'll find out whether your city's is doing well there. And um, so that's that's where I would start. And then I would zoom in on the city, and I would look more on like the neighborhood and the street by street level um, to find neighborhoods that have some qualities that are attractive places to live. And it's going to be very different from town to town, city to city. But like in most urban areas or small urban areas, you want to look for things like how close is this property or this neighborhood to a big uh, park, big public space, or, or some kind of um, area that's, uh, that the city or the community has that's really popular. Like, you know, in a lot of areas right now, like bike trails and parks and, um, you know, little commercial districts with a lot of shops and coffee shops and things like that you know, that is very intuitive. Like when you, when you live in a city, you're going to know the areas where everybody wants to be. And so you just start with that. Like I actually put a, you know, make a little Google map and put a push pen right in like the heart of the city and then start zooming out and like, all right, what, here's the area, like the hottest area where everybody wants to live and like draw a big, you know, red, you know, red background around that area. And then the the coolest like places where the most opportunity uh, will be is right on the edge of those hot areas. Like if you, you could find something that has some of the similar qualities, it's also close to the park. It's also close to the commercial district, but it's not yet as, as expensive as the best area. Um, that's the, that's kind of the fun puzzle of looking at locations and you're looking for those little opportunity areas and you do all of that before you start looking at specific properties, because right, right. that's, that, that's, what's going to drive your future economics, particularly with buy and hold. Like what I love about buy and hold is like, you don't have to be like a day trader who like figures everything out. Like today, um, all you need to look at is like the big macro level long-term trends. And th- those trends are like super slow moving, you know, easy to, to follow. It, it, like real estate is not like a quick, like, man, this whole market's crashing tomorrow kind of thing. Like things happen pretty slowly. Like even in 2007 and eight, like the downturn happened over like a six to nine month period. And you could see the clouds on the horizon if you were really looking for it. So that's the cool thing about real estate and buy and hold. You don't have to be like a genius as, as, as you can see evidence from me, <laughs> you know, you can just kind of look at the long-term trends, try to buy in locations that are, have some long-term possibilities. 
And then you get to the sticks and bricks, like the actual property. And you, and what you're trying to do is you're trying to, to generate as much rent as you can for the cost of that building. And so that's, that's where we got into, you mentioned like the, the type of building you want to have. Uh, like, I like, I like high, very efficient buildings. Like it, I had a friend who had a property in Seattle and like his, his rental property look, basically looked like a milk carton. Like it had, it was like, it was like this really like small footprint and it went up like three or four stories and he, you know, it had a tiny little lawn with like, he basically said you could cut the lawn with it, like with scissors or something. Like it was, it was so small. And so like, you know, if you start getting on the other end, if you got a big property that had like this enormous lawn and you had to cut it all the time. And if you had a lot of square footage, if, you know, like bigger properties are not necessarily better in real estate. Like what you want as much rent per square foot as you can get. And like the bigger property you get, the the more you're going to, every time the tenant moves out, you're going to have to paint it. You're going to have to replace flooring. Right. And, and so like you, you want to look for efficient buildings and desirable areas, and then you want to buy them at a price that allows you to make a reasonable cash flow today. Um, but then over time, hopefully that'll get better. Nice. And I, I just uh, was listening to a podcast where Brandon Turner from Bigger Pockets was on, and he was saying, um, obviously, he's always looking to add value to a property after he buys it. And one of the, the things that he looked for was like two bedrooms above a thousand square feet because he always thinks that he could somehow get a third bedroom in there. And that's a really good way to increase that uh, cash flow that you're getting from rental income. Um, are there any sort of things like that that you keep an eye on as well? Yeah, that's that's a good tip. I mean, he basically looked, you know, because two bedrooms, if you get over a thousand square feet, his idea is that maybe you have like a dining room that you could convert to a bedroom and it's very cheap to just like build a closet. You just basically frame it out with wood and then put sheetrock and put some doors on it. I mean, that might cost a thousand bucks or less um, to do that. And so you basically... By spending a thousand bucks, you now increase the value potentially in some markets, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 bucks. So that, that's what um, he's looking for for value add. And I, I do that as well. I, I think another kind of trick is to look for unused uh, space in a building. So, like a basement would be one example. If you can convert a, a, like a walkout basement that right now is just unused space, just using for storage. You know what? It, you you could look at the local ordinances, and perhaps you could turn that into an an extra rental unit that could actually make money. Right. Uh, that that's that's the kind of thing that you and it takes a little bit of local knowledge. Like you know, some cities will allow that, or some cities will say there's certain requirements that you have to have. But that's that's where you kind of study what's going on locally, and there's there's tons of opportunities like that where you can just look for unused space. And convert it to something different, like even parking, like in Pittsburgh or some of the more urban areas, I think parking is a big deal. So maybe you can find a building where they're not charging for parking right now or where there's some extra space that you could convert into parking and then charge people for that. Um, that's that's the kind of thing that can turn a sort of average deal into an above average deal that makes extra cash flow. That's the thing that really appeals to me. Like I, we were just looking for a place to rent in Edinburgh because we moved out of our place in the spring and we saw this small little apartment come up. Um, it was only like 460 square feet, but the space was already really utilized very nicely and there was some room for improvement there. And it was like, okay, Airbnb people don't care. Like Edinburgh is like such a hot city for Airbnb and it's like, they don't care if they have 460 square feet versus a thousand square feet. So we could buy this place for way cheaper than most of the places in the city are going for and then still get the same amount of rent uh, and live, you know, when we're not there. Mm -hmm. And just the thought of 
one maximizing space just like super appeals to me because efficiency is like the thing yes. I love to focus on more than anything anyway with anything but then also doing it up like to a really high standard and it wasn't overwhelming because there's not that much space so you don't have to spend a fortune to do something really nice and like make it really comfortable because there isn't that much space to furnish and paint and decorate and all that stuff. Yeah, I love that idea. And to me, there's so many crossovers when you do real estate between like practical financial benefits and also personal philosophical um, things as well. Like if you just mentioned like being liking efficiency and to me, like it's I'm really interested in urban design and how cities are designed. And um, one of the main messages I get from like smart growth and smart development is that you want to have very efficient city design where you have more density in some areas you have public spaces that everybody can use and then you have that connected by public transportation and biking and walkability and so much of like what i think makes people happy and makes me happy in a lot of these urban environments can also be um more profitable in some cases so um, i love it when you can find like the intersection of something that you know is is the right way to plan a city and the right way to and you can encourage that and make money from it and um and then do that again and so that real estate is very hands-on and it's very tangible and you get involved in your local community like i'm i was somehow i got like talked into being on the planning commission for two years before i left for ecuador um um and it, it was I'm not going to do that again, but it was a super good learning experience on how cities are designed and sometimes how cities are not consciously designed. You know, this stuff happens, but on a local level, when you get involved, you can make a big impact. Like sometimes at these city council meetings or town council meetings, there's like 10 people at the meeting. And so if you're a passionate person who thinks those kind of topics are important and walkability and bike trails are important, you can get in there and show up at every meeting for 30 minutes and make a big impact. And that's, I think that's pretty cool. That is cool. And and yeah, you mentioned being more part of your community. And that's something that I feel that's one of the only things that's lacking in my life and my wife's life currently is that we move around so much. So we don't ever feel like we're settled. And since I'm like an introvert <laughs> by nature anyway, if I know I'm going to leave somewhere in two years, I'm not exactly going out and trying to make a bunch of friends. So right. it's like, all of our friends are either back at home where we used to live or where I went to high school and things like that. And I, I realized that a, a big piece of happiness is just like running into your friends randomly and not having to plan, you know, week long trips to go see everybody that you like hang out with. So it's like, all right, well, we're not going to stop moving around the way we are. So maybe buying somewhere would ground us a bit. Mm -hmm. And then that led me to this thought, which I had mentioned Brandon Turner earlier, and he 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 seems to coin all these cool terms in real estate, like house hacking and the BRRR yep. strategy that you wrote about and stuff like that. <laughs> so I came up with my own strategy that I'm calling peak arbitrage, and Ooh. I'm going to run it by you, and all you right. can see what you think. I love it, um, but you heard, you heard it here first. This is this is, right. <laughs> this is the, the coining of the, this term. If it is a thing, if it's a bad idea, then I'll give it to Brandon Turner. The, the, the mad the mad scientist has been boiling something up in his cauldron. I love it. <laughs> yes, exactly. So <laughs> this is the first time it's coming out to the world, so you can uh, you're hearing it first. So this is this is the thought. So since my wife and I are from two different countries, no matter where we settle, neither of us is going to be. Both of us aren't going to be completely happy because one of us is going to be super far away from friends and family that they grew up with. And they're always going to be like, oh, I want to go back to America. Or Joe will be like, oh, I want to go back to Scotland. So 
we're flexible, obviously. Um, Jill's still working, but she's working in a part-time, like uh, just picking up shifts capacity. I'm obviously not working. So the thought was, this is like two dreams in one. We love Edinburgh. It's a great place. And it's got a fantastic short-term rental market because uh, it's a beautiful city. It's extremely walkable and, you know... Tourists aren't going to stop coming to Edinburgh unless the castle gets blown up somehow. Um, yeah. It's been there a while, though. It's probably it's probably still going to be there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's been there a long time. And and then my like long term dream was to always just live in a mountainous area so that I could play pond hockey on the weekends and go skiing all the time and maybe get a part time job as a ski patrol guy and throw. <laughs> bombs and create avalanches and stuff with a bunch of <laughs> bunch of guys like super early in the morning. So my thought was since peak travel season for those two scenarios is quite different. If we bought a small flat in Edinburgh and we stayed there from say January 1st through uh, July 31st, which, you know, we're cutting into some of the peak uh, travel season there because summer is quite big. Um, mm-hmm. But we could obviously, you know, maybe leave in June and then travel around before heading to the States. So then we'd reap crazy amounts of rental income from peak season there, which the Edinburgh Festival is like the biggest arts festival in the world and just crazy prices for, for staying in Edinburgh during that time. And then if we had a house in the mountains somewhere, we could stay there from, you know, July through to Christmas, say, and we would get to enjoy the last bit of summer there, get to enjoy the fall, which is one of my favorite seasons, and then ski for a few months before then leaving and renting it out for the big part of the ski season, which is, you know, Christmas, New Year, and then late winter and then early spring skiing. And we would be back in Scotland where it's super cheap because nobody wants to come to rainy, dark Scotland in January (laughs) through whatever. So you're sort of, you got the best of both worlds. You're getting best of both lifestyles, which obviously this at this point, it would be a lifestyle play and a lifestyle play with investing in mind. Like I I wouldn't just go out and buy a boat because I want to enjoy a boat, you know, because that's like a terrible investment. But this could Mm -hmm. be like a reasonable investment, maybe not the best investment, but reasonable. And yet I'm enjoying that lifestyle as well, which is something I would have never considered. But somebody that you also interviewed for your book, Mauricio, which is somebody else we've met in Ecuador. Um, he was talking to me about it. And he has some mountain properties. And he said they're actually really great investments where he's invested. So it, it made me think, oh, maybe it's not just a thing rich people buy that just is a complete waste of money. It could potentially be a good investment. So all right, that's a long way of introducing you to my peak arbitrage uh, <laughs> strategy. But what are your initial thoughts? I, I think it's brilliant. The mad, fi- the mad, <laughs> mad scientist has, has struck again. Um, no, <laughs> no, I think. I mean, to me, like I'm just kind of reflecting on it as we as I talk. But um, the thing I like about it is, you know, it, like owning your residence and turning your residence into an investment is one of my like core strategies that I talked about in the book. That it's, it's one of the main ways I talk about people getting started in real estate. And in fact, in your case, it, it might be the only like real estate you need to own, um, and it and it does a few things. Like I love the fact that uh, you're you're getting some of like the happiness quotient that we talked about, like getting to a community and having some roots, and it's something that my wife and I have talked about a lot too. Like we we know here in Clemson, South Carolina, where we are, like we have family nearby. I've got real estate investments. I've got friends. We've got friends. We've got a community. Like we're, we're never going to be totally out of this community. But at the same time, we have these other places we love and we're going to travel. So like, I feel completely like related to what you're saying and how, like, how do I have roots, but also have flexibility. And I think having an efficient 
high demand property that you live in and also do short-term rentals in is just it's just an awesome opportunity and you're you're taking advantage of the technology and the the way things are changing in the in the internet world you know like Airbnb and other short-term rental kind of possibilities like that would not have been possible 20 years ago or 10 years probably 10 years ago and right. and so like I, I think that's you you're, you're sort of you're, you're you're taking advantage of um, the economy what's going on you're aligning it with what's important to you and then as an investment um, you know real estate has uh, several benef- several core benefits. One of the first ones is income, like the fact that a, a rental property produces income. Um, when you live in it part of the year and when you're, it's not going to produce as much income, but that's not really the play. Like in that you're using short-term rent, by, by doing a short-term rental, sometimes you can make as much income in five or six months as somebody else with a long-term rental would make in, in a year. Um, there's a little bit more work to it. And so like the, the main thing I would see like on that kind of plan is, you know, you're sort of running a hotel when you do, when you do these like Airbnbs. And so right. I think you, I think you can do this, but I think you need to find some people on the ground, like a really good trusted person who could be sort of your co-host and, and you could pay them a fee and build that into your, your, your numbers to make sure that you're paying somebody a reasonable fee that keeps them excited to help you out. Because when you're, when you're traveling around in the U S or in the mountains on, you know, throwing bombs to get avalanches, like (laughs) you're not going to want to hear about like something going on in Edinburgh. Like you want somebody there who can take care of things. And like what I did in my case, like I, I gave my key person back at home, like a decision matrix. I said, look, if it's below 200 bucks, I just want you to make the decision. And if, if I don't agree with your decision later on, um, we'll, we'll talk about it and we'll learn, but I'm not going to like penalize you for you making a decision that you thought was the best thing. And so like, that's, that's what I did. Like I gave them just like, uh, uh, they can make a decision. I trust you. If it gets, if it's a $500 decision, okay, text me, you know, and I'll, I'll get back to you. And so that, that removes a lot of the, you know, day-to-day stuff. And so I think in your case, like having, having some management on the ground will be the key piece of the puzzle to make that, make that work. And then also finding, like the property you you were talking about earlier, that efficient property that makes you happy, that's walkable, but also um, the, you know just looking at the numbers and seeing what those numbers look like. I mean, I'm I'm willing to bet that over time, like if you owned a property in Edinburgh, like an efficient four or five hundred square foot kind of uh, apartment in a good location, you know that the appreciation play on that over the next twenty years is probably going to be pretty good. Um, you're, you're you're giving yourself a good hedge to um, other investments and other money that you have. Excellent. All right. Well, I'm I'm excited. That's that's really good. Um, talking about like having that efficient place, efficient also in the sense of like longevity and mm-hmm. like durability. I guess is what my question is. So, do you know of any like good books or online resources that dive into like okay, if I'm going to create this with the sense of maybe renting it out to short term people on on Airbnb what's the best sort of materials to use for all the different areas of the house so that it lasts and is easy to maintain? Yeah. I mean, bigger pockets is a good community to get in for that. Like I, I've seen, um, I don't know anybody, any books particularly, but I know, and you, you could just YouTube, like YouTube's is every, like every, every like house problem that I don't know how to solve. I YouTube it and almost <laughs> always find, find some guy like or lady, like showing me how they do it. And so you could do YouTube and then bigger pockets, like on the forums, you could, 
there, there are tons of conversations about materials for rentals and should I use luxury vinyl tile or ceramic tile and what's the cost difference? And like, that's, that's one of the r- cool things about real time communities is that you can just ask questions. And so you could like, for example, you could post your question on there and say, I've got a 500 square foot apartment. It's going to be a long-term rental. It's going to be Airbnb. Like what floor surface has gotten all of you the the best um, return on your dollar long run so that it's durable and I don't have to keep replacing it. Um, so that's, that, that's a place Perfect. I would go. But like in general though, like the, the longer you're going to hold an investment, some of the mistakes I made personally was being, was being cheap, <laughs> being cheap on my materials <laughs> and like just, you know, Oh, that, that's the cheapest way to do it right now. And then you, you, inv- you install this, you know, this, product or whatever. And it, it ends up being, you know, costing you a lot more in the long run. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Like we're selling a house right now. And during the inspection, when the buyer had their inspector in there, they found a leak behind the wall in a bathtub. And like somehow they saw it, like, you know, some of the floor was wet from when they looked from underneath the house. And this was probably installed before we bought the house, but we, we learned after like taking out the carpet and the floor and that we had to rip the entire bathtub out all of the joists, like there's the joists are like these support oh, beams underneath were all like half, half rotted. All, I mean, so this, this entire floor system was like wet and rotted. And when we finally got it all ripped out, they showed me what had caused all of that mess and this thousands of dollars of damage and, that I'm having to now replace. And it was this one little connection piece where the shower, the shower head connects to like the pipes behind the wall it was plastic. It was this little plastic piece. And so somebody had just like twisted it too much. And, and they said, you know, if that had been a metal piece, like if you, if whoever had bought, bought that had not bought the 50 cent piece and they bought the dollar 50 piece instead, (laughs) you would not have had to spend like thousands of dollars. And I said, Oh my God, like that's (laughs) like what a, what a revelation. Like I am not like, if you can go on a a little bit more expensive on a long-term property with a, if, if, if it's going to be more durable and less likely to break over the long run, like go for it. Like that's, it's probably going to be a good investment. Yeah. That's exa- So that's the huge risk for me. Cause yeah, I'm always looking for the, the cheapest thing, but, and that's why these smaller properties appeal to me so much. It's like, okay, it's 460 square feet. Even if we pick the nicest tile or whatever for the bathroom, it's not going to be breaking the bank and you know if it lasts longer and it looks good for 10 years or 20 years instead of five then that's going to be worth it exactly is, yeah no that's that's good to good to hear because yeah i would definitely be in that camp of just like yeah, <laughs> trying to save the pennies yeah so so my peak arbitrage strategy gets the thumbs up no i like it good the other the the flip side of that i guess is something else that i read in your book and you had mentioned something from the financial samurai sam had said something about like buy utility and rent luxury which in this case would be the the exact opposite because edinburgh is very expensive and i'm sure anywhere a mountain property we would buy would be very expensive and the sort of argument behind rent luxury by utility is that it doesn't make sense in these markets to pay the premium to own because a lot of the times the rent's a lot cheaper. And Edinburgh is a perfect example. Like this, this uh, flat that we were considering was 800 pounds a month to rent, or I think it ended up going for something crazy, which is why we didn't get it. Cause we didn't even get close. I think it went for like two sixty to buy. So, mm. <laughs> you know, the 1% rule that you often hear about that, doesn't come anywhere close right um so in that case what sam from financial samurai was suggesting is uh rather than 
spend 260,000 pounds to buy a 400 square foot place in Edinburgh to save $800 in rent, you'd be better off taking that what is effectively 300,000 US dollars and maybe buying three houses in Pittsburgh that mm-hmm. would generate, uh, I don't know, $2,400 in rent. And then you could use that to pay your rent in Edinburgh and then uh, pocket a uh, good profit. So that's also very compelling too. Um, obviously, the lifestyle wouldn't be the same in that scenario. But what are what are your thoughts on that strategy? Well, that's basically the strategy I use. So, <laughs> like I'm like I've, I've told people like uh, they've talked to me about beach houses and mountain houses, and I'm like, you know, I'm I'm perfectly happy renting a mountain house and renting a beach house. But but I think it's a little bit like so it's a little bit different than your peak um, peak what is it called peak arbitrage oh, strategy. peak arbitrage oh man see the branding it must not be good if you already <laughs> forgot it that's terrible I need, I need right. Brandon Turner to give me the good All catchy right. title yeah yeah Let, let's let's brainstorm with Brandon a little bit but I, I think we I think we can make it work um, but you know it's a little bit different because you know there's also the utility that we talked about and that those factors and and I see like Edinburgh and like living in a downtown area is a little bit different than living like at a vacation spot. So may, sure. I'm thinking, even thinking in your case, like maybe you own in Edinburgh or you own in the mountains or one or the other, like, and maybe, maybe you don't own in both. And then maybe you take some of that other money and like if you all- allocate a certain amount of money to real estate that you're, you're comfortable with in your overall portfolio, you put some of the money into whichever place makes the most sense financially, like the, whether mm-hmm. it's Edinburgh or, or the, the mountain and and then you take the rest of the money and like basically what I do is just own solid rental properties that produce good incomes in areas where the rent to value ratios are good and where the long term economics that I talked about earlier are also good. Um, so like the thing about big cities like San Francisco, New York, some of those places, like they they have like the best uh, long term economics. Like people are always moving there. Like urban areas are not going away, but their short term economics are really really tough. And, and so like, I, I, you know, it just depends on like what your goals are, what you, how much income you need. Um, you, you're probably going to make a lot more appreciation in some of those long-term places like Edinburgh. I, I can just imagine, you know, 20 years from now, a property in Edinburgh being a lot worth a lot more because it's, it's really difficult to build. It's really difficult to find places, any kind of land, right? I imagine like, for oh, some, yeah, absolutely. For, yeah, I mean, it's just gonna be almost impossible. And so you're basically playing on the fact that supply is super limited in the core of a city. Um, you don't know how, how that's going to affect your long-term investment, but that's, you know, that's supply and demand. You just want, and you have a high demand, really low supply. So maybe like, this is kind of a Warren Buffett play. Like Warren Buffett learned in his career, he used to buy like the super dirt cheap property or uh, companies that had awesome metrics where you just, you know, you can buy it dirt cheap. Um, and he learned eventually though, that he would try to buy the best companies, like really solid long-term companies. And he wouldn't be able to get those as much as at as much of a discount. But he, they were they were growth plays. They were long term plays, and so all the companies he owns now, like Geico and Coca Cola, and I'm trying to think of all the you know all the different ones. Like he he didn't get like a steal on those properties, but he's made a ton of money uh, long run. And so I guess going back to your point, like I think a combination of those two could be good. Like I see a principal residence and a core location. Um, as a, if if you buy it and you get a ton of utility and you get a ton of satisfaction out of being in the same place and a good location and the short-term rental kind of changes the economics a little bit. Like you, you mentioned $800 a month as a rental cost, but I wonder what the short-term rental numbers would be over a hundred, over a hundred pounds a night. Yeah. Um, (laughs) over a hundred pounds a night, especially in the summer, I haven't checked, uh, I'll see what it is in the, in the fall and the winter, but 
right? Yeah, it's uh, over 100 pounds a night for something that small in that exact location. Okay, so like even if you had 50% occupancy for the year, you know, I'm trying to think, just run rough numbers, you know, 365, so 100, 150 days a year, that's 15,000 pounds, right? Something like that. Right. For, yeah, for, exactly. for six months. So, so I, the point is, I guess the economics can, if you can, this is what you do in real estate, you got to find a little niche. Like if you just get the, play the, do the average normal stuff, like the numbers might not look great, but if you can get an awesome location and you can do something like short-term rental or some other kind of niche to get more income from it, you can now turn like, maybe, maybe that's not the 1% rule still, but maybe it's like a decent, it kind of gets into that Warren Buffett kind of quality property territory where you're making a decent income. You're getting a lot of utility and a lot of joy and a lot of satisfaction out of being there and being part of a community. You're getting appreciation um, and then you can take another chunk of money if you really wanted like the the solid income and like go to a growth area in Pittsburgh and buy a property for 150,000 bucks that maybe rents for 100 for 50, for 1200 bucks or 1500 bucks and the numbers are going to be better and and so you're sort of diversifying between those two strategies. Nice. All right, cool. Yeah, that's that's great to hear and and yeah, the the particular one of the interesting things about the Edinburgh thing which actually was the only reason I started actually looking into it is cuz uh, the pound has dropped so much. And since all my money is in the US, mm. you know, that even though real estate is still hot in Edinburgh, to me, it it's sort of on sale yeah. because that currency exchange rate dropped so much. So it that's it may be a good time for me personally to buy whether or not it's a good time with the hot market in Edinburgh. That's a different story. But right. if it's a long term play, and and then obviously, you know, I'm not going to get into currency trading or anything like that or <laughs> talking about Forex or stuff because that's and that's mostly speculation. But it's like, well, relative to the past, this is actually looking more on sale than it has been in a long time, mm-hmm. even though the market itself is quite hot. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, and, and I want you made a really good point earlier that I wanted to go back to about the buy utility and rent luxury. Like in general, like that's still a good strategy for everybody to think of. Like, I, I just I think that's such a. The, the point is like you, you could go to one extreme, like, you know, like Jeremy, our friend at go curry cracker, like he and I have, have gone debated back and forth about ownership versus not ownership. Like if you're super like mobile and you're just not wanting to settle down anywhere, like owning all hundred percent investments and always renting everything like that works. Like that's, that's cool. Um, but I think mm-hmm. what I love about this conversation is we're bringing in the nuance of what makes us happy and also what's profitable. And it's, it's really with real, when you have some knowledge of real estate and you can sort of um, diversify yourself into it, like you can have ownership of property and flexibility just by knowing how to operate a rental property and by doing that. And that's that's what I found. Like my, my trip to Ecuador was an experiment. And can I um, own util- properties that have a lot of utility and then have the flexibility for our family to do whatever makes us happy? And for that 17 months, that's what made us happy. Like, I don't know what it is going to be like two years from now, but um, having like some well-placed chess pieces within the real estate board and within other investments gives you tons of flexibility if you kind of plan it ahead of time. So to for someone who is enjoying the flexibility and the low stress of, you know, just owning index funds pretty much, one of the biggest worries about diving into real estate for me personally and i'm sure a lot of people in the audience is maybe liability is is that a is that a concern for you do you mitigate or weigh some of those risks through you know llcs and things like that how do you how do you think about liability yeah it, it is a concern um and i think the first line of defense 
is not even financial. It's just is running your business in a way that you treat people right. And you, if you do have problems, which inevitably, like even if we try our best and, you know, treat our tenants right and do everything we can, like sometimes things happen. Like I've, I've had, I had an issue in an apartment with where, where they left for the summer and they didn't, and something malfunction or they didn't leave the air conditioner on. And in the, in the deep South, like you went to school in North Carolina, right? You, you know how, yeah. how humid it gets in the summer around here. And so we ended up having like moisture in there and having some mold grow. And it was just, it was just kind of a stressful situation for everyone involved. And I'm not saying like the tenant was completely happy and they, you know, but, but we communicated with them. We did our best we all tried to solve the problem. I didn't ignore it. And therefore the liability was reduced. Like we, we solved it in the end. Like I, it cost me some money, but it also, they were, they walked away and we all kind of like agreed to be friends. And so like, I think like how you run your business has a lot to do with the amount of liability you're going to have. Like, I think the horror stories people hear about, um, you know, lawsuits and craziness is I, my, my, anecdotal evidence is that they're coming from people who kind of run their properties like a slumlord and they don't right. treat people. They don't tr- take care of their property. They don't treat them right. And, and so if you look at your, your relationship with your tenant more as a partnership, like they're the employee or the partner who's helping you like operate your, your business, um, then you'll treat them differently. And I think most of you, everybody who's listening here, like none of them are going out trying to screw people over. They're going to try to treat <laughs> people right. So that, I think that's the first thing that I would say is like, you're, you're probably going to be fine there. But then beyond that, um, insurance is a big deal. Like, so even if all that fails, um, you, you want to have uh, liability insurance and it's actually super cheap. Like it, when I, uh, on a, a regular old house in my area, I get landlord insurance in case the house burns down and have an accident like that. And you also get liability insurance, meaning if something happened and somebody sued you, you know, and you can get up to like a million or 2 million bucks, like super cheap, like a hundred bucks extra a year for just to oh, okay. increase, to increase it. And so you know, you, you can to get a, a million or two in liability insurance is really going to help you be helpful for most most things you need to worry about. And so th- those are your two first lines of defense. Um, you know, I'm not an asset protection kind of person. So like there's attorneys who study this stuff and who are really good at this. And so beyond that, you know, owning a property in an LLC is probably prudent. That's what most attorneys tell me, at least. And sure. just so you don't have um, the you don't combine your real estate property asset and liability with all of your other index funds and other assets that you own. So you're just basically keeping them in separate baskets and running that as a separate business so that if the worst case happened, you're at least kind of quarantining your problems there. So you interviewed a lot of really interesting people and you said you learned a lot. Were there any strategies that you heard about through the interviews that you now may choose to implement? Yeah. So there's one about, uh, doing 1031 exchanges. And let me explain what that is in a minute. But it's, it's, it's like, it's a strategy I have not used. I've known about for a long time, but it, basically what it means is when you sell a rental property, one of the big tax benefits, which I've written about on your site, you know, with the, the tax benefit article is, is you can sell a property in real estate. And as long as you replace it and follow the IRS's rules with a, with a, equal, a similar property, then you don't pay taxes on that transaction. And that's a super big deal. Like, and so for me, like as I've accumulated properties, I'm now on the stage of uh, sort of moving the chess pieces around the chessboard, so to speak. Like I'm selling some properties that are not optimal and I'm replacing them with other properties. And by doing that, you can really accelerate your, your wealth growth, your wealth plan or your income or your, the quality of your investments um, without paying taxes is super tax efficient. And so I'm actually in the process right now of doing my first 1031 exchange 
And so like studying the book and listening to others, like sort of showed me uh, what I already knew, but this sort of demonstrated the power of doing that. And it's something I'm going to play around with as well. Oh, nice. And hopefully write about on coachcarson.com. Absolutely. I'll show all the numbers nice. and share, share the details for sure. Fantastic. Well, uh, this has been amazing as always chatting to you. Like I know I've cornered you in coffee shops in Ecuador before to talk about this stuff. And, uh, anytime, anytime. <laughs> so it's always a, always a joy. And, um, I always end all my interviews just asking what's one piece of advice you give to somebody on the path to financial independence. And I've obviously asked you this in our last interview, which was a couple of years ago. So it's fun to ask that again, just to see if, uh, if your thoughts have changed. So what's, uh, what's your one piece of advice this time? Yeah, I'm going to go with a theme of my sort of my book and it's becoming the theme of my life that I'm trying to get out there is just um, do what matters. I don't, if, and, and, I, and I think this applies whether you've reached financial independence or not. I think that's the lesson from my reading of your articles and what you've realized after financial independence. And I know my own realization is that, you know, life doesn't start when you get to the peak of the financial mountain, like life, life is like all along the way. And, and so if you're climbing that mountain, like you know, do what matters now, like enjoy your family. If that's what matters, enjoy your friends, um, take time to, to travel, take many retirements. Um, if you're, if you have a cause or something that's important to you and you think it's important now, like don't wait, 15, 20 years from now, when you have enough money, like let's, let's just do it now, like get involved. And I, I think I, that philosophy of doing what matters and kind of building your life around it has been really re- refreshing for me because and I'm, I'm a money nerd. Like I love the spreadsheets. I love real estate, but when it comes down to it, like the joy and the happiness you get out of your life, I think is aligning that money with the people and the causes and the activities that really like excite you and make you passionate. And so I'm, I'm, I'm working on that. I'm not perfect with that, but I'm, that's kind of my aspiration. And I'm, I guess I'd just encourage people to, to do the same. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And that's, yeah, as you mentioned, that's something I'm realizing more and more is how important that is. So it is your answer is different than the first interview, but both were good. But I'm yeah, I, this one shows that you're you're sort of on the same path as me and you're thinking <laughs> and realizing that money's not everything, which um, your first answer was similar to that vein it was you if you remember it was uh keep it simple and that was with investments and that was with life in general which was a great great advice because i the the more i've simplified the just happier and more carefree i feel Um, but yeah you can see that your thinking has been evolving (laughs) just as mine has been so that's that's good to see yeah chad thanks so much this has been great i'm so excited about the book so if anyone wants to get it should they just head to amazon i can maybe link to it in the show notes yeah, if you look up uh, "retire early with real estate" on Amazon, it'll be there. You can do. I, I actually recorded the book, so if you can, if you can put up with my southern accent for you know eight <laughs> hours, then uh, we'll we'll you can join me on the on audio book and also uh, there's a digital book and a print book. And if you like to order on bigger pockets, they actually have some, um, you can get on Amazon, but on bigger pockets, I, I did some bonuses where I interviewed people like Paula Pant and Lisa Phillips and one of my mentors, uh, John Schaub, who's wrote uh, the book building wealth one house at a time. It was really cool for me to interview him because he's been doing basically what I've I'm doing for like 40, 50 years. And, and so it was really fun for me to get to pick his brain about early retirement. He actually took a little shot at the, like the five community or like, he was kind of joking. He's like, yeah, I don't really like to, to, to be frugal. Like I like airplanes. 
<laughs> that was it. <laughs> I was like, well, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of boxing in the whole fight thing, you know, I was like, you could, but it was fun. It was like, he's like, if I want, I, I like airplanes. So I just buy another house or two to pay for my airplane habit. <laughs> That's so really that cool. Fun. Cause you mentioned that book on the first time I interviewed you. So that must've been really cool to interview uh, the, yeah. the, the, the main book that you recommended. I think it was, it was really cool. So that, that was a, I interviewed him and that interview is, is available. And if you buy it through bigger pockets, you get those as, as kind of a bonus for, for get, buying through them. So that's, that might be a, a reason to check that out. And it's just fun to get to hear other people's perspectives other than mine on, on this whole journey of financial independence. Very cool. Well, I will link to all of that in the show notes so you can find that there and uh, anywhere else people can find you. Should they just head to coachcarson.com? Just yeah. uh, say hello if they want to chat. Yeah. Yep, I'm on coachcarson.com. I'm still publishing weekly. And if you're if you're interested in this whole concept of investing in real estate so that you can retire early and do what matters, that's that's my mission. That's what I'm doing every week. And I'd love for you to join me over there at coachcarson.com. Cool, man. Well, thanks again. I look forward to seeing you in Orlando, right? So you'll be yeah. there? Yeah. See you soon. Can't FinCon. wait. FinCon right, cool. We'll see you in like a month. All right. <laughs> Excellent. All right, man. Well, it's been a pleasure. And yeah, I'll speak to you then. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks. Bye. Finance.